Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, September 19th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hello. Jen Habercorn of the Los Angeles Times. Hi, Julie. And Kimberly Leonard of the Washington Examiner. Happy to be here. Later we'll play the interview I taped earlier this week with Dr. Marty McCary of Johns Hopkins. He's got a new book out called The Price We Pay about why healthcare costs too much and what we might be able to do about it. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. Okay, let us get to the news. Let's start this week with Tennessee's new proposal on Medicaid, because we haven't talked about Medicaid in a while. So Tennessee, which has a long and in some cases checkered history with its Medicaid program called TenCare, now wants to try out a block grant, or I guess sort of a block grant. The state is offering to take a capped amount of money from the federal government, and if it spends less than projected, it would split the savings with the federal government, and if it's more, then the state's on the hook for the difference. First question, is this even legal? (laughs) Maybe not. Maybe not. And certainly advocates who oppose this kind of arrangement where they say that uh, people would you know, receive fewer benefits and be kicked off Medicaid will go after this. Um, They've already pretty much said so. the we should point out that it hasn't actually formally been even filed yet. They just sort of here, – here's our plan, comment on it for a month before we send it to Washington. Right, exactly. And so Nick Bagley has said that it is not legal because – Nick Bagley, um, who's a law professor at the University of Michigan. Yes, yes. Um, so he had a blog post about how – so Medicaid is allowed to – states are allowed to make changes to Medicaid that they can apply with the federal government to do. But there are certain ways that they can't just go about doing this. And he argues argues that one of the ways is that you can't just change the funding structure of Medicaid. So he doesn't think that it's going to be able to go forward. That's not something you can do in a waiver, basically. Right, right. And the Trump administration has encouraged the idea of block grants. They really want to see a lot of states do this. It's something that conservatives really like because they want the funding of Medicaid to be more predictable from year to year. They want to spend less on Medicaid. And so um, even though, you know, Tennessee is moving toward this doesn't mean that the Trump administration ultimately will have the authority to go ahead and and give them the okay to move ahead with it. Although they certainly may try, right? (laughs) Yeah, it seems like that, you know, obviously, as Kimberly mentioned, the Trump administration has pushed block grants. um, And that was a buzzword. And it's been a couple years, I guess, now when we were going through um, a little bit of the repeal and replace stuff. And so, you know, I think that this is something some people do want to see tried out. And so, you know, Tennessee could potentially be where that could happen. Um, I think there are other concerns just beside legality. You know, we have this issue of what happens if Tennessee needs to spend a lot more money um, on what if there's a, a jump in enrollment or what if there are drugs like those um, 
uh, drugs for hepatitis C that came out several years Although ago. Don't, that I think really, they want to exclude oh, drugs from true. this. They are for just that reason. Drugs. Yeah, but the the enrollment issue could kind of be be something where they if they spend more, you know, what what if they don't have it? What if it's a tight budget year? You know, and I think there's um, there are a lot of concerns they're going to have to address. Jen, this is kind of the the Republican mantra, as as Kimberly said, that that you know. They would like to move. They one of the reasons that the repeal and replace of the Affordable Care Act failed is because the Republicans were also trying to completely remake Medicaid, which was not really part of the repeal and replace effort. It's just something that Republicans have wanted to do. Is this something that you think might play well in an election year? Well, I mean, we've seen the Trump administration encourage Republican-led states to do things like this, and they. Um, uh, you know, the Obama administration before them always stopped these things right in their tracks, made clear that they weren't going to support it and that it was illegal. And the Trump administration is doing the opposite. Um, you know, if Republicans aren't going to be able to repeal the health care law, they feel like this is a way to um, make their point in Republican-led states. And it it might play well. I mean, I... I think Medicaid is not the most populist <laughs> voting issue. Um, Although it certainly turned out to be more popular than people anticipated in 2017, that's kind of why I'm asking. But on the Democrat side, on yeah. the Republican side, I don't think I don't think any Republican voter is going to go to the polls because of Medicaid. I but think they, that's but true. a Democrat might go to the polls to vote out a Republican over something like this. Well, I think you can talk too about saving money, and yeah. you know that sort of is would be the bottom line if you're a Republican and you're talking about this. It's maybe less uh, Medicaid. That would be the afterthought and the, the first thing you're saying in well, a campaign year is we're saving money. As mm-hmm. we know from the 14 states that haven't expanded Medicaid, um, paying paying for poor people's health care, even if the federal government is paying most of it, is not very popular in red states. Right, exactly. So maybe it will help for them. Anyway, we will. I'm sure that like like so many other things, I'm sure this will end up in court. <laughs> we yes. Will, we will see how it <laughs> plays out. Um, all right. Next, it is almost that time again. States and the federal government are gearing up for open enrollment for people who buy their own insurance to comply with the Affordable Care Act. It starts on November 1st this year. So the mandate is now completely gone. It was actually gone for 2019, but I think some people didn't quite realize that. Um, and low and behold, we are seeing premiums actually going down in many places. And we're seeing, at least in some places, insurers come back in. This is not what anybody predicted, right? (laughs) No, I don't think that um, certainly uh, several years ago, I would not have thought that this was the way that things were going to go. And you know, what was it? Um, 1.3 billion will be coming back in some of these sort of payments for um, people whose health insurance overpaid or, or, or on, you know, didn't spend enough on on health claims, essentially. Um, and so there's a lot of good news for people that are in the individual market. That's right. They're going to be getting like, well, though I did, I did the math in Iowa and I did it like five different ways. And I realized that, yes, the average re- return that they'll be getting from the, these excess payments that they have to, to give back is $22. I was wondering what, that was, what the actual total was. I kept was. thinking this has to be wrong. And I did it a bunch of ways and I realized, no, it's actually $22. But, but still, there is money coming back to people because a lot of these insurance companies overcharge. I mean, not obviously on purpose because now they have to give the money back, but because right. they really didn't know what they were going to get, particularly without the mandate, although this goes back a few years. Um, I'm eager to see the impact of the Trump administration's uh, short-term rule. Um, they expanded 
previously, a short-term health care plan was only three months. Now it's up to a year, and they can renew it even longer. And the impact that might have, um, particularly, I mean, if the, the prices are going down for premiums, but um, you know, our consumers going to realize if they buy one of those, the the real impact of that plan. There was a great story by some of uh, Anna's colleagues at Bloomberg this week about mm-hmm. a couple who bought what they were led to believe was comprehensive health insurance, and the the guy had a heart attack, needed heart surgery at a 200 some $100,000 bill, and apparently their short-term plan paid $4,000 of it. So there's every prediction that there will be that while there's maybe, I think it's like 100,000 people with these short-term plans that that's expected to go up sort of geometrically and that there's going to be a lot of people with plans that don't cover very much who end up in the hospital thinking they have better coverage than they do. I mean, it's not a surprise bill issue. This is a pe- this is basically the insurance that these people bought. They just don't know that it's the insurance that they bought. Right. Mm-hmm. Like they actually, this insurance plan, I think these people had actually said comprehensive. And, you know, when you're, t- when you're talking insurance lingo, that means something versus what they actually had. Yes. At least in the eyes of the consumer. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and I mean, the woman in the story said that, you know, she went through an agent, through a broker and was mm-hmm. told that this was comparable to the, to the coverage that they'd had before, I think it was from Aetna, I mean, you know, from Affordable Care Act type coverage. Um, And this is obviously not Affordable Care Act type coverage. Right. And what stood out in that particular couple's case was that they could have actually qualified for an Affordable Care Act plan in which they would have been spending less per month than what they were getting for their less comprehensive plan. So it just really underscores the need for people to shop around when um, open enrollment comes. I've gotten out of the prediction business now because (laughs) everything that's happened to the Affordable Care Act since since 2017 has been a surprise to me. Um, (laughs) but, But it does look like the market will be a slightly more welcoming place this year for people who buy their own insurance? Is that is that a fair way to put it? I mean, if the insurers are reducing their prices, um, they, you know, they're the ones who spend a lot of money trying to figure out this market and who these customers are going to be. So that would suggest yes. But to your point, none of this has gone as anyone mm. had predicted or would have predicted. You know, when the AC was being passed, we would not have expected that 10 years later, you know, we would have had such volatility both on the price and the insurers coming in and out of the market. One of the things that has really helped states lower their prices is that the Trump administration has approved these reinsurance plans, which are, you know, really popular along bipartisan lines. They essentially inject funding into the market so that the most expensive medical claims are paid. And that means that then um, the premiums go down for everyone. The people who are most affected, though, by premiums going down by the actual price are those who don't get subsidies from the federal government. And we know that um, those who do are are probably pretty much going to stay put, but those who aren't are the ones who are probably going to be looking at things like short-term plans. And it's not as though Democrats don't acknowledge that that group doesn't need reform. Um, They've put forward a lot of proposals that would cap what people pay on their health insurance or that would allow them to um, get more subsidies. So um, that is an area that really needs to be addressed no matter what happens There was almost a bipartisan plan that got through Congress on reinsurance, except it fell apart over abortion, as so like many, many things, things do. You know? <laughs> right. So but, now they're kind of approving state by state yeah, instead. And, and I think you're right. I think that's sort of a, a big piece of, of why sort of premiums have been held steady, if not lowered. I'm amused by the idea 
we're still waiting for the result of this lawsuit from from Texas, um, which is, of course, now in New Orleans at the appeals court level. But one of the things that it, it claimed is that without the, the individual mandate penalty, the, the whole law is unconstitutional. And one of the things in the decision out of Texas was saying, well, that, you know, the, the Obama administration itself argued that the law couldn't stand. It, it just wouldn't work without the, the mandate and the mandate penalty, except that the law is clearly working without the <laughs> mandate and the mandate penalty. And I keep wondering if that's going to sort of factor into the later legal decisions on this, because all you have to do is look at what's happening and you see, okay, there's no mandate, but the market is pretty stable. We've we've also seen, um, you know, Trump going from, I'm going to have this great health care plan again, he said it again, but that it was supposed to come out, you know, this month and we haven't seen or heard much of it yet. So their calculation could be including that as well. And that, you know, okay, maybe people really are going to like this after open enrollment and maybe we need to prepare if, you know, something, if the the court does end up um, overturning Obamacare. So I think that is calculating into different um different thought processes on this. Well, there's been a lot of asking of, of Trump officials whenever they're, whenever Congress gets a chance, do you have contingency plans right. for if the court overturns the law? And the answer, at least so far, has been, we're working on them. <laughs> right. And Or yes, but we're not telling you what so they that's are. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of unexpected bills, we talked about legislation to address surprise bills, in this case, out-of-network bills for people who actually do have comprehensive insurance, uh, and how it's proving difficult for Congress to get across the finish line, even with bipartisan support in both houses and the support of the president, thanks to very intensive lobbying by those who make a lot of money off of those bills. And it turns out the private equity firms who have bought some of the staffing firms that send out those bills. Last week, our podcast colleague Margot Sanger-Katz and her New York Times colleagues managed to ID the source of some of those ubiquitous TV ads run by a dark money group known only as Dr. Patient Unity. It turns out that the sponsors are, surprise, doctors groups owned by private equity firms. (laughs) Meanwhile, with the Senate bill stuck waiting for floor action, because apparently Mitch McConnell doesn't want to put it on the floor until there are more Republicans supporting it, uh, the House couldn't even get its bill marked up in a committee. Does anybody see any improved outlook for this? This was the one thing Congress agreed that they were going to do this year. I think there's still a shot. To your point, it's such a populist issue. And, you know, the only people on the side of surprise billing seems to be this private equity firm that's willing to spend a ton of money. A couple of private it. equity firms. Right. Um, and so I, I, there, there is bickering right now, but I think a lot of that is based on what uh, policy would go into place to prevent surprise billing. And I could see this being tucked into like a year-end deal or some kind of bigger package. Um, it's always a safer bet to bet against Congress getting something mm-hmm. done. But if anything's going to happen this year, I'd put this in the category of uh, potential. Yeah, it, 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 it's hard to lose money betting against Congress yeah. <laughs> finishing something. And I, I was going to say, I'm, I I think there's always a chance, but I would, I would also maybe take the safer bet a little bit <laughs> just because I think what private equity money has been able to do in this case is make it look like there's a lot of concern from uh, doctors. And then they go on TV and they have these ads. And so people are calling into their Congress members, like, what's going on? What are you doing to us? This is socialist medicine. Like, they're not even mentioning Is it going to close my hospital? Yeah, the hospital. Yeah, I mean, the really scary ad is the one with the... the, Right. uh, No one's at the hospital. The ambulance, right? And they get there and the lights are all off. Exactly. So I think that that's... I mean, the number in Margot's story was huge. I mean that they've spent on ads. Um, 
And so you can't I think turn that on that, cable news without seeing the ad like three mm-hmm. times. And and I think that that's why that there's this possibility that it it doesn't happen because that's it's already derailed so much. Although just, there there is a legit disagreement between yes, that's what Kimberly yeah. would say, but the people who want arbitration, um, who think that they can sort of push prices up a little bit more, and the people who want sort of benchmark prices where the the people you know where basically it would be it would make it more like Medicare. Um, and there, there's that's sort of the big fight that's still happening here. Yeah, there's a good portion of senators who definitely want to be able to kind of add that backstop of arbitration, not just to set the benchmark plan, but to have some way to appeal whatever the price might be. Those senators are concerned that the current plan is too much in favor of insurers, and they think doctors and hospitals should be allowed to have, you know, a little bit more bargaining power. What I'm curious of, and I don't know the answer to this, is if it was to become arbitration and not benchmarking, would suddenly there be support across the board from the doctors and hospitals? I I don't know. Call their bluff, basically. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the question now isn't over one or the other. It's whether to add... To yeah, have both? That, right. To, ha- to have benchmarking and then if you don't agree on the benchmark, then you have the option of arbitration. That's where that's where the senators want to add things. That's that's what the uh, bill from Senator Bill Cassidy would, would do. And that's where a lot of senators have kind of gotten behind. All right. Well, speaking of things that, that are simple problems with very difficult solutions, let's talk about drug prices for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> also, one of those things that Congress wants to do on a bipartisan basis that the president is behind and yet... We're still having trouble. So, so we got. Uh, I, I think as we're speaking, we're we're getting uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's plan, which was intended to unite Democrats, but apparently has not yet done that. <laughs> What what do we know about where at least the House is on prescription drugs? The House is – House Democrats are universal that they want a prescription drug plan. In fact, they feel like they ran on health care in 2018. They flipped control of the House on this issue. They need to do something. That's where the agreement kind of stops. Um, <laughs> uh, the proposal that uh, Pelosi's putting out today, which uh, prior versions have leaked, progressives are a little frustrated that it's not as progressive as they would like. Um, moderates are excited about the plan but have concerns as well. And, you know, I think eventually Democrats are likely to come together. This is H.R. 3, um, which symbolizes that the speaker made this a huge priority. Um, so if if House Democrats can come together, which isn't if, um, the bigger question is the Senate where prescription drug legislation goes to die. <laughs> <laughs> and you have, you know, Senator Grassley who has his own prescription drug pricing bill and he's been telling colleagues, if you don't get behind mine, you're going to have to deal with Pelosi's and we don't want to do that. So, um, you know, I think where you're right, it's where they go to die or at least like, you know, get drastically changed and not turn out at all like Pelosi planned. And Grassley has a pretty good point. I mean, the president Unlike a lot of issues, he's been relatively consistent that he wants a prescription drug plan. Mm -hmm. And if he were to get together with Pelosi and they did something, that would pull along a couple of Republican senators. It would pull along Republicans in the House. And that actually could happen. Um, Yeah, Grassley's not just blowing smoke on this. It's it's a real threat. Um, We should point – I mean, Grassley's plan is bipartisan also. So they just Mm -hmm. have sort of a different approach in the Senate than they do in the House. There's no drug price negotiation in in Grassley's plan. Which there is in – although we we were talking before we started to tape. It's not not a huge scale uh, drug price negotiation in in Pelosi's bill. And these are just for certain Medicare drugs. It's not a – 
big, wide, we're going to, the, the government, federal government's going to negotiate the price of drugs. But Yeah, this is just for drugs that have very minimal competition. So they're, you know, they can price whatever they want because they've got nobody on their heels. But I think one point we're going to hear from Democrats a lot, you know, Julie, you mentioned that this is um, a pretty small scale, the, the floor is 25 drugs. But in terms of starting the process of negotiating prices with Medicare, that would be a huge step. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's something I think we're going to hear a lot from Democrats. I think if this plan does move forward, Democrats are going to be out there saying, you know, look, we were able to do this minimal thing when negotiating with the Republican president and Republican Senate. Look, think about what we could do if Democrats were on the table in 2020 to address this big, huge thing, a number one issue on voters' minds. And she does kind of seem to be, you know, waving over at the Trump administration and saying, we're going to base the prices of drugs on what other countries are paying. Um, because she knows that President Trump has expressed a lot of um, you know, anger over the fact that other countries, he always says, are, you know, um, getting the better deal that they're um, sort of benefiting from the fact that we pay so much for drugs and they don't. So part of her plan would sort of use uh, the average of what uh, other wealthy nations are paying in order to determine what the price would be here in the U.S. Of course, if Trump were to come along and do a deal with Pelosi, you could sort of see that because then he could go out and say, I, I lowered drug prices, which he's already mm-hmm. saying, even though they haven't done very much. So he, but he, he could sign a bill that says, yeah, I a bill drug signing prices. ceremony would be very attractive. That would be very attractive yeah. to, to President Trump. And, and I think, Jen, you're right. I think both, it's one of those cases where both sides could actually run on it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, definitely House Democrats and the president. I think one issue that suggests that it's not going to happen is that Senate Democrats would not want to give the opportunity for. All the Republican senators who are up in swing seats, swing seats this cycle, that opportunity. You know, I'm thinking of Tom Tillis in North Carolina, Cory Gardner in Colorado. So McConnell, the seats that Democrats really have their sights set on. Exactly. So I mean, McConnell, the Republican leader, isn't crazy about bringing forward a drug bill. And it's really hard to see Chuck Schumer being super excited about <laughs> that happening. So too. this might be another place where Bill goes to die. It could happen. <laughs> but well, we will see. I'm sure we will we'll see definitely more on this. All right. Well, last week we promised to talk about how health played in the Democratic presidential debate, except there wasn't that much that we hadn't seen in the earlier debates. Lots of confusing charges and counter charges about whose plan would cost too much or too little or change the health system too much or too little. Actually, my favorite line in the debate came from Pete Buttigieg, who broke up one of the scrums by saying, quote, this reminds everybody of what they cannot stand about Washington scoring points against each other, poking at each other. So my question for you guys is whether Buttigieg is right. Will all this intra-party fighting and confusion spreading make Americans even more cynical about the possibility of the next president actually making progress on health care? I think that's a tough one because it's probably really informed voters who are watching the debates versus the mm-hmm. the general public. I don't know if they're – or I think their, their um, frustration threshold for that kind of thing would be a little higher. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's just us. You know, I was thinking during the very extensive Medicare for all discussion in the last debate. And it always comes right at the top. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we're all – in this, seeped in this world. But I was starting to get a little bored. Like, we've heard all this before. No one has really changed their position. And the question I have is, okay, say Republicans keep control of the Senate. What's going to be your health plan? You know, because Medicare for all 
is relatively pie in the sky for Democrats right now. We They're, couldn't get a public option when there right. were 60 Democratic votes. I'm going to put this on a T-shirt in 2010. Yeah. And, and that's why there's discussion of changing the filibuster in the Senate, which, you know, that that could happen. Um, I don't see it happening right away. But, you know, if Republicans control any part of Congress, what's what's your health plan going to be? What are, what are you going to try to do to perhaps shore up the ACA versus, you know, totally upheaval the health care system? For the second time in in a decade, um, that's a question I'd want to know. They need a health reporter at the next. <laughs> <laughs> and any infighting that Democrats have during these primaries can always be used in future attack ads by mm-hmm. Republicans. And so, you know, Democrats like to occasionally pause and say, "Wait, let's not fight. We're all for universal health care." But the details do matter tremendously. Mm-hmm. Republicans were all for repeal and replace. You have to be on the same page if you're going to really pass health care legislation. So um, the infighting definitely matters a lot heading up into 2020. So the, the aforementioned Pete Buttigieg, who's still kind of struggling to get from that middle tier into that very top tier, put out his health plan. Um, it looks pretty much like, I think, what he's been saying all along, which is he's he's adopted that Medicare for all who want it, which I actually have issues with how you describe that. <laughs> but, um, but it would be voluntary. It would be sort of he, he's basically ID'd himself in that more moderate, not in the not Medicare for all wing, in the Medicare for more wing. Is there is there will this be enough? Did he really need to even do this? Or is he trying to make point out that Elizabeth Warren is still the only candidate who doesn't have her own health plan? <laughs> I think he's trying to kind of have his cake and eat it too, which I'm, I don't mean to sound too negative on because there's several moderates who are in that position. But, you know, there's no Democrat who wants to totally um, eliminate the idea of Medicare for all. But there's a, a willingness to point out that it's aspirational. It has problems. So they're trying to kind of check the box of Medicare for all is a great idea someday, but also point not lose the independents who think Medicare for all is really expensive or has problems or would kick, you know, half of the country off the insurance that they already have at work. Buttigieg's message has been, I trust the American people to decide which health care plan is best for them. And so that's why we're going to go about things my way is kind of what he's saying. We should mention that even his approach is not something the healthcare industry would welcome. They would certainly push back against it very aggressively. Um, it's a little bit more um, aggressive than Biden's because it helps people automatically enroll in plans. Although um, Bi- Biden, it, in defense of Biden and the little, little fight he had with Castro, there is an auto-enrollment feature of Biden's plan. That's true. That's true. Right. For people who would have otherwise qualified for, for Medicaid, Medicaid and the non-expansion states. Exactly. Um, and uh, his comments were certainly mischaracterized by by Castro in that particular exchange. Um, but Buttigieg also is saying that he thinks that if it sort of happens that everyone really likes these government plans and Medicare for all will kind of happen naturally. So he's not really saying that we might not get there eventually. He's kind of saying we probably will get there. Well, I think it's going to take a while. All right. That is the news for this week. Now, we will play my interview with Marty McCary, and then we will come back and do our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast Marty McCary, who I imagine will be familiar to a lot of our listeners. Marty is a surgeon at Johns Hopkins and a best-selling author whose last book was turned into the Fox TV show The Resident. Marty has a brand new book out called The Price We Pay about the ongoing cost crisis in healthcare. Marty McCary, thanks for coming in. Great to be with you, Julie. So a lot of your earlier work involved healthcare quality. You developed the now famous surgical checklist. At what point did you realize that the cost of care was as big, if not a bigger problem than quality? Well, the field of quality measurement has gotten stagnant. 
And our, my feeling was people are getting hammered with their medical bills right now. Price transparency will usher in greater quality transparency. If you if there's only one TV to buy and it's 500 bucks, you're just your brain's going to think, do I buy it or not? But if there are two at different prices, 500 and 560 dollars, you're going to immediately say, what are all the specs? What are the differences? What's the quality? So I'm talking about the appropriateness of care as a way to measure quality, not just the complication rate. And talking about pricing failures uh, were really two big areas our research has pivoted to in the last five years. Are patients really going to be able to tell the, the difference? I can't tell the difference between the two TVs or between the two cars. I can't imagine I could tell the difference between, you know, two different CAT scan prices. What we've seen is the few areas of healthcare that have already moved to price transparency, and that is LASIK eye surgery, um, IVF treatments, and cosmetic surgery have all seen a global reduction in pricing over the last two decades and an overall improvement in quality with a tide that's raising all boats. So uh, the question is, can we do the same thing for healthcare more broadly? And my goal was not to say in a hundred different ways, yes. My goal in the writing the book was to say, look at these people who are doing it and look at their business booming at their medical center and look at this incredible disruption that's supposed to be something huge. So a lot of your book covers things we've been working on here at Kaiser Health News, including unnecessary care, indefensible markups, and hospitals suing their own patients, who sometimes are their own employees. But you also delve into things like induced demand, including health fairs that are basically designed to troll for patients who are basically healthy. Which of these things is the most pernicious and contributes most to the problem of costs that are too high? Well, I think, first of all, I think most doctors do the right thing or always try to. When I meet with hospital leaders, I am super impressed by these individuals. And they passed up being in in other areas of business to try to serve their communities at their hospitals. We have good people, but they're working in a bad system. This inherited game of marking up prices and offering secret discounts to select employers and insurance companies I wanted to basically show the research from all of our work at Johns Hopkins and that of others around the country that would get at the real drivers of healthcare costs at the same time that the cable news outlets and the politicians are putting this facade in front of us about different ways to finance our broken healthcare system. We don't need to just talk about how to finance our broken healthcare system. We need to talk about how to fix it. And to get at that, the story that nobody is talking about that we need to talk about are the root causes of number one, pricing failures, two, middlemen, and three, inappropriate care. And in the book, I go through all the exciting stuff happening that's addressing those uh, different areas. But those issues, to, to be clear, are, are linked, right? Those, I mean, the, the failures are all sort of linked to each other, right? It's sort of this game that, uh, that the insurers and the providers play. It's all part of the fog, and, and that fog is what you know, leaves people. The, the movie The Big Short took what was a crazy industry, the banking industry, that lived in the fog of, oh, it's very complicated. Leave it to us experts. And did these crazy money games that anyone could understand. And the movie The Big Short explained that in simple terms and created mass literacy around the financial sector. That's what I wanted to do in the book, The Price We Pay, is create healthcare literacy around the, the, the very relatable examples that allow one to understand this industry. So no one will say anymore, oh, healthcare is so complicated, I don't understand it. 
and instead can say, oh, I know exactly what's broken here, what the money game is, and the disruptors who are about to dis- uh, change it. You're going to get Adam McKay to make it into a movie? Oh, I don't know. I, you know, I like to live a simple life at Hopkins as a, a surgeon, you know, taking care of people. But uh, you never know what people are going to run with out there, as we saw with the resident. So it feels like a lot of this problem stems from people who have health insurance, but with deductibles that they can't afford. Is that where this all started? Or I guess it goes back further than that. Um, Insurance companies, which get a massive pile on by the politicians, um, really are just passing on the cost of these high priced services. Now, there are some money games in the PBM space, and I call those out. But Uh, by and large, they're just passing things along. And if you look at the total financial burden on everyday Americans, it is so astronomical how much they're spending on health care. Somebody needs to say, stop, look at what we're spending. And our research team just put out a piece, published it this week in USA Today, that all out of all federal spending, all dollars the United States government spends, 48% go to health care in all of its hidden forms. So think about that next time you file your taxes, okay? It's not just Medicare and Medicaid. It's half of Social Security going to uh, pay for those Medicare co-pays and deductibles. Medicare also has premiums, as Kaiser Health News has pointed out. 8% of the Defense Department spending is for its own health care system. Then separate, we have the VA health care system. And then health care benefits the government pays for for 9 million federal workers and their beneficiaries. Then you have the NIH, CDC, and all those groups, actually less than... Uh, one-tenth of one percent. And interest on the debt is in part interest on the health care debt. Think about that next time you file your taxes. You're spending half of your tax dollars on health care, well, half of all federal spending, some of its deficit spending. And then on top of that, $18,000 per household for health insurance. Now you're told something's not covered? I mean, this is the crazy game that is played in health care where everybody is getting rich. Almost every stakeholder in healthcare is making a ton of money, except for maybe rural hospitals, and the patient. And so um, somebody needs to just say, stop, look at how extreme it's gotten. It's not, it changes whether or not somebody really owes the hospital money or not when they can't afford that, um, that bill below the deductible. Although, I mean, I wonder if that's where this sort of started with the hospital suing patients was because I know there was a lot of worry among hospitals when deductibles started rising above the average amount that people have hanging around and available to them. You know, so instead of what is it that the average American can't afford a $400, you know, bill, and yet most people have deductibles that are used to be 1000 or 1500 Now it can be 3500 or $5,000. Most people can't pay that $5,000 if they end up in the emergency room. Why are we not talking about hospital prices? Uh, Libby Rosenthal just had that piece in the New York Times. Why are we not talking about the fact that the same appendectomy operation I did 16 years ago at Georgetown Hospital with the same suture, the same knife? I mean, the knife is not that much more expensive. The nurses are getting paid roughly the same as what they were getting paid. Physician salaries are relatively stagnant over the last few decades. Why is it cost 700% more? And that is the story that nobody is talking about. Now, hospital leaders are busy. They're meeting regulatory requirements. They're getting hammered with all everything getting thrown at them. Um, there's a whole host of this new middle industry that's been um, come up. But it's ironic that 
take, for example, university hospitals in the United States, the center of scientific genius, and we can't give you a price? I mean, no one's saying we give you a price when you're shot in the chest and you're in the trauma bay, but 60% of healthcare is shoppable. And we go through in our research these issue of uh, markups, and of course, that led us to the question when we talked to hospital leaders, what about this bill being marked up 23 times the Medicare allowable amount with no correlation between charity care or quality? And we were told, well, Marty, nobody pays those bills. And then we said, now let's look here at the Amish. I grew up near the Amish in Pennsylvania. Let's look at the uninsured. Let's look at, you know, it used to be that when you're uninsured, society blamed you. Oh, well, you deserve to pay that, you know, be, you know, punished for not paying that bill. You should have had insurance. Well, now, guess what? It's the everyday American who's insured, hardworking, goes to an in-network hospital and is getting slammed. This is not their fault. This is our fault in healthcare. This is our Bill of the Month project. This is, so this is why, that's why I love the Bill of the Month project. You guys have done a tremendous service with that. So how would transparency fix this? Well, imagine airlines would bill you after the flight. Okay, imagine you went to Travelocity or Expedia and there were no prices and the airline industry would argue we have to bill you afterwards. We can't possibly give you a price. We don't know if you're going to have a delay or a cancellation or the the pilot may experience turbulent turbulence and have to bill more RVU work units after the flight and the half hour he spends billing for his services after the flight. And heck, we can't predict if you're going to consume a beverage on the flight. We would say that the lack of showing prices, building in the predictable risk in the market for flights, uh, enables price gouging. If you can't show prices, it enables price gouging. And so uh, in healthcare, we can take this direction of these other services that have already gone this route. And in the book, I basically show how some centers have done that. I guess the big question is always, is it scalable? Or are people willing to scale it in this case? I think the answer is yes, because the market is rewarding places like the Surgery Center of Oklahoma and the members of this new movement called the Free Market Medical Association, the best annual conference I've ever attended in healthcare a grassroots group of individuals that say, hey, we want to meet this demand for honest pricing. Doesn't matter who's paying insurance or, or individuals. We're not going to do the secret negotiated games. It costs money to do those games. And honestly, all this billing stuff's exhausting. And we're just going to do honest pricing. Um, I think one of the distracting arguments, and this is put out by some of the op opposing stakeholders here in Washington, is that we debate what percent of people will use pricing information and cite the study that if people are not paying, they'll choose the more expensive service. That is a distracting argument. The reason is that proxy shoppers move markets. I don't shop by price when I go to the grocery store. Hey, God's been good to me. I'm a surgeon at Hopkins. I don't, it's just my style. I don't look at the prices. And other people are similar. But my mom, and all of her friends penny shop. They price compare lemon to lemon at different grocery stores. The fraction of people who are proxy shoppers on our behalf keep markets in check. You see it in LASIK surgery, IVF treatments, you name it. Any market works like this. There's also big proxy shoppers, health plans, employers who are now more engaged, and they want to see honest prices. So, um, if we can move away from this distracting argument of what percent of 
individuals will use the pricing information and look at proxy shoppers and the impact on markets based on precedent, I think you'll see a revolution that is already taking shape. It's already gotten a launch. So who's going to really make this happen? You, you know, you say you're optimistic about are being able to address this problem. Um, as you know, Congress is struggling to address the surprise medical bill issue that the public, Democrats, Republicans, President Trump, all want to fix. And yet some of the people who are doing well by sending surprise bills are doing a pretty good job at stopping this. Um, if we can't fix that, how are we going to fix everything else? Well, I think there's two ways to address healthcare. One is through the government and one is without the government through the private sector. The government piece is very frustrating and as somebody who meets with a lot of the of our political leaders regularly and talks about healthcare in private conversations, a lot of them are worried about the impact on special interests and their uh, donations to their campaigns. Look at the surprise billing issue, a couple different different versions of it. As you know, the dirty little secret in D.C. is that time is death. If something, if a debate drags on, that's the reality. People are saying, oh, why was the ACA, you know, passed so quickly? Look, time's the enemy. If the stakeholders, you know, start to circle in the water, things are dead. And if it's just, a, it's right. So the reality is um, a lot of dark money which we now know comes from, in part, private equity, and I believe from the physician groups, have been killing every attempt at addressing surprise billing. I was really disappointed with my own physician professional organization for opposing all forms of surprise billing reform. At the same time, it is trying to address a symptom of a larger problem. Surprise billing is not the root problem. It's a symptom of a larger problem. Let's give transparency a chance. We've seen these candidates talk about Medicare for all. Our research shows we're already spending 48% of all federal spending on health care. What are we proposing taking that to? I mean, we're all for care for everybody. Who doesn't want that? I mean, I'm sure there's some diabolical person that wants people to suffer in the world. But most people want everyone in the country to get health care. The question is, do we get there by pouring good money after bad into a broken system that already spends 48% of its entire U.S. Uh, budget on health care? Or do we give transparency a chance? And I believe we can cut that waste through many of the steps I outline in the book. And I think the examples in the book show how folks are already doing it. Businesses can make better choices on buying health insurance, buying their pharmacy plans through P from PBMs, through the uh, brokers, you know, the broker industry, not many people know this, is as corrupted as the subprime mortgage broker industry was before the financial collapse. Businesses are getting ripped off all across America. And I highlight in the book, The Price We Pay, how businesses are making better choices, finding the honest brokers, and they're out there, and I show how you find them, and they're saving half a million dollars right off the bat by doing better PBM contracts and shopping for insurance more competitively. Last question. Have you talked to any of the presidential candidates about this? Not the candidates. I have met with President Trump and Secretary Azar uh, in leading up to the price transparency executive order that was signed. Um, look, if a politician asks me for my opinion, and they often do because they want academics who are independent from stakeholders, I'm going to give it to them. And I gave it to them unfiltered. I brought patients with me to the White House 
And, you know, people can say what they want about this administration. I was so impressed. Azar is one of the smartest people in healthcare I've ever met. President Trump listened and then immediately acted on that price transparency executive order, made announcements on surprise billing. The, I was very impressed. These are not partisan issues, okay? A pothole is not a partisan issue in your town. And I believe if we can turn off cable news and talk about the money games the same way the big short did, we can get broad consensus in the United States about the things we need to do. Americans are united against corruption, against the interests of special interests trumping the interests of of broad uh, Americans. I think there's broad consensus. We need to appeal to the best in people and talk about the issues nobody's talking about, pricing failures, middlemen, and inappropriate care. Marty McCary, The Price We Pay. Thank you very much. Great to be with you, Julie. Okay, we are back. It's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash health. Anna, why don't you start this week? Mine is from the Washington Post. Um, it's by Lori McGinley and her colleagues at the at the Post. And it's the vaping industry has close ties to Trump. His ban still caught them off guard. Um, so this relates to the company Juul, which is um, a very large um, vape company. It's the one that all the kids like to use. And they were caught off guard when Trump... Um, said the other day that he was going to take all of flavored e-cigarettes off the market um, and make them essentially apply to resume sales to get FDA approval. And this story is a really great, it's just a great rundown of Jules' influence, um, how so far it hasn't worked, but I don't think we know in the end whether it will actually work or not. They have hired so many lobbyists. They they Mm -hmm. make the drug industry look like they're just (laughs) flat-footed. And they all used to work, you know, in the White House um, and... Um, former Speaker Ryan and for and Boehner's offices, things like that. So they all have huge connections, um, and it also is a it talks about this meeting, these meetings that happened in the day or two, like leading up to Trump's announcement. Um, and so I think it's just it's a fascinating look and rundown of what's been happening with this industry the entire time it's been blowing up. So I think you know if you're interested in in vaping what's going on now and and how influence works in D.C. It's a great read. Jen. So mine is from my colleague, Noam Levy, at the Los Angeles Times. Um, it's The headline is, American struggles with medical bills are a foreign concept in other countries. And, um, you know, we all know that the American healthcare system is very different from the rest of the world, but I thought this was a really good look at how that is the case. Um, and he it's uh, datelined a town in the Netherlands that I cannot pronounce, um, but he did a lot of reporting Um, in Europe to really illuminate this. Kimberly. My uh, pick is from a uh, Canada publication, The Globe and Mail. It's called, uh, it's by Kelly Grant, who I read a lot and follow on Twitter. Um, Toronto-based hospital network commits land to build affordable housing. And I picked this because we're hearing from doctors so much how important it is um, when their patients, you know, leave the doctor's office or leave the hospital and go home and then uh, the environment they meet when they're there and how hard it makes 
it um, for them to, you know, not be readmitted to the hospital or not need more care if they're not, you know, living in in good housing. So um, it's a great read, and uh, I encourage everyone to look at it. When I saw it, all I could think of is the Hahnemann Hospital, which is a big teaching hospital in Philadelphia, that's closing because the land is valuable and was bought by a hedge fund who wants to tear it down and and redevelop it. So it's like, okay, this is just exactly the opposite of what's going on in Canada than what's going on in the United States. All right. I have two related stories this week by our colleague, Anna. Uh, And can I just stop and say that our podcast panelists have been kicking butt all of this month. There were like five or six really great stories to choose from. Anyway, both of Anna's stories, one called Carcinogens Have Infiltrated the Generic Drug Supply in the U.S. and Carcinogen Scare Sets Off Global Race to Contain Tainted Zantac. Uh, These are the continuation of an investigation that, Anna, you've been pursuing all year, right? Yeah, it's been a year-long one. So first it was mostly about contaminants in blood pressure drugs made largely in China and in India. Now it's been found in generic heartburn drugs, too, prompting the company to stop distribution of the drugs. It's pretty scary for a U.S. drug supply that is world famous for being safe. That's always been the argument about, you know, we can't import drugs from other countries because we have such a safe drug supply. Um, I assume, Anna, there will be more on this to come, yes? Yes, definitely. I think there are a lot of industry and um, government failures that I'll still be looking at. Excellent. Okay, that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Anna Edney. At Jen Hab. At Leonard KL. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.